Ernest, what's up? Look, I want to put you on to something that's been making waves in the personal finance world. If you've been relying on Mint to manage your finances, I got some news that might startle you at first. Mint is no more. But hold on, because every cloud has its silver lining. And in this case, that lining is Monarch Money. For those of us searching for a robust, user-friendly alternative, Monarch Money is stepping up to the plate. And from personal experience, it's hitting a home run. Let's get personal for a moment. Managing finances can be a maze of confusion, stress, and time consumption. Believe me, I've been there, jumping from one finance app to another, hoping to find that one platform that simplifies everything. Then came Monarch Money. Its ease of use, powerful features, and sleek design transformed my approach to managing finances. What truly sets Monarch apart for me, though, is its collaboration feature. With money being a top Discord trigger for many couples, the ability to seamlessly manage finances with my wife has been a game changer. No extra costs, just shared goals and clarity. But Monarch isn't just about managing your current finances, it's about building your future. Saving for that dream house, your wedding, or a once in a lifetime vacation becomes not just a possibility, but a reality with Monarch's intuitive tools. It's no wonder the Wall Street Journal held it as the best app for savings growth. Monarch Money represents the next evolution in personal finance apps. It's an ad-free haven where your experience is the priority, constantly refined based on real user feedback. It's everything we've been asking for, intuitive, powerful, and relentlessly focused on user satisfaction. Now, for a bit more practicality, Monarch makes transitioning from Mint a breeze ensuring you can bring all your tags and categories with you. It's intuitive design, customization options, and commitment to privacy and an ad-free experience make it stand out in the sea of competitors. Look, after trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash leisure. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash leisure for your extended 30-day free trial. Earners, what's up? Y'all know I'm big on doing your research, sharing your research, and giving credit to where you found the research. But I always get asked the same question. Where do I start with the research? And the answer is easy. It's our sponsor, Yahoo Finance. Whether I'm tracking the daily movement of my favorite companies, doing technical analysis with their easy-to-use charting platform, or checking balance sheets, Yahoo Finance makes something very complex simplified. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or you're looking for extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. You could actually securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including your 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors. And it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. 
With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. You heard me, yahoofinance.com. Don't wait, don't hesitate. I use it. You should go over and start using it now. Let's just redesign the building and let's get ourselves up to 1600, so 100 below or 1650, you know, to be just below to, you know, to pay respect to One World Trade, but to be the tallest building. I, I made the decision, I said, change the design, come back with a building that's 1650 feet tall or better. If we're going to build the first skyscraper and we've waited this long to get a chance to do it, it needs to make a powerful statement. It needs to be the best. My graduates from my school being Forbes, backdrop. Backdrop. <laughs> F- a mic drop. Backdrop. Backdrop. Make some noise. I, I hope you guys fully appreciate this opportunity to hear this gentleman speak. Um, it's not every day that you, you hear somebody of his caliber, you know, communicate. So this is something that's very, 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 very important. And something, like I said, we actually flew back from L.A. for this because we understood how important this was. So first and foremost, I want to thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. So which one is mine? This one? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, so I think I'm on, yeah. So by the way, it was also important for me. So I was in uh, Boston. We've got two projects in Boston and, uh, that we're developing right now. And I was in Boston Wednesday through Friday and left my last meeting and then went and flew to the Hamptons uh, to go to a friend of mine's birthday party. And then I drove in here a couple hours ago so I could make sure I'm here as well, because it's very important. There you have it. So this, this is going to be a fun conversation, a high-level conversation. Um, but before, I just want to preference it. So we actually, it's interesting how life works. So this was years ago, probably when I first graduated from college. My dad, he got me a book. And I really don't even read a lot of books, honestly. I'm more of an audio guy. But um, I actually took the time to read this book. And it was The People Principles. And um, I was reading the book. And I learned a lot about you. But... After that, it was an event in New York. It was a networking event in New York. And this is when I first started my career as a financial advisor. I used to be a financial advisor before I do this, before I did this. And uh, I'm like, I got to go because I heard he was going to be there. So I'm like, I got to go. And um, we went, I went by myself and I met him. And I was telling him, like, you know, I'm a big fan. I read your book. Da, 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 da. I didn't really have anything to offer, but I just wanted to just introduce myself. And um, he was like, yeah, man, keep working. I'm sure we'll run into each other again. So, like 15 years later, we ran into each other again. And so, yeah, your dad wanted to let you, he told me before we came, make sure Rashad tells the story of me buying him the book. So, thank you <laughs> nah, <laughs> on his behalf. For sure, for sure. <laughs> so, um, Mr. Peoples needs no introduction, but I'll try to give a brief one before we get into this conversation. Um, real estate entrepreneur, uh, developer, author, political activist, and, you know, a always, gave me great pride when I went to South Beach because when we were young, we used to go to South Beach a lot and um, the Royal Palms and that was your hotel. And I believe that was the only black-owned hotel on South Beach, right? That's right. 
Yeah, yeah, so we used to stay there. So I, I stayed there before I even knew it was your hotel. That's true. And when I found out that it was your hotel, I'm like, it gave me even more of a pride to actually stay there. So, um, and I don't know if these numbers, you know, but I, I, I guess I did some Googling. They said 700 million net worth. Yeah, that was in 2007. Okay. <laughs> so, I'll let you do the math. <laughs> Slight, slight stunt. Hey, uh, hey, Mike, edit this. This is going to be a billion-dollar conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Do the math. Um, but I'm, I want to jump into this. So how did you get your start in real estate? I know, I believe it started in D.C., right, with, with the mayor? I did start in D.C. And, I, and by the way, and I think one of the things, you mentioned the Forbes story about the $700 million. Um, I would not cooperate with them any time after that, mainly because that isn't who I am, and I don't want anybody to know me based on that, um, whether it's a dollar or 700 or billion, whatever it is, I mean, I would like to think that my purpose is deeper than that. And so, and I got into real estate um, in DC um, because I was initially gonna be a, a doctor um, and then changed my mind and quit school and went back to DC. But I learned it from my mother and, 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 and I, mention that because it shaped who I am and what kind of business person I am. So, and I think it's important for everybody to understand a bit about, I think, what drives me as a business person, because I think it'll, it drives you all as well. Um, and dip, we all have different experiences. But I was born in 1960. So that was during the peak of the civil rights movement, the 1960s. And so I remember um, as an eight-year-old when Dr. King was assassinated. I remember my community um, being in flames and my mother driving me home from school and having me get down on the floor of the car because our, our city was you know, on fire. And I remember Robert Kennedy getting assassinated. And so that shaped my life quite a bit. And so my mother, who had me at 19 years old, um, uh, you know, was a secretary and, uh, and then after buying a house in Prince George's County, Maryland, saw in the closing statement how much the broker's commission was and how little time the person spent with her. And so she decided to go to night school and get her license. And, uh, and then she and I relocated um, to Detroit where her sister was living and with her husband who was doing his internship and residency. And that was 1968. So they had already experienced the riots and we had moved there. And um, my mother got a real estate sales license and then a couple years later, my uncle um, was in private practice and invested in her and backed her as a real estate broker. And she had her own real estate business and brokerage business. And then the recession hit in 1973. Um, and my aunt and uncle moved um, and she moved. Um, she and I moved back to D.C. And she got a job in D.C. And it was um, a job being the sales director for a project called Town Center in southwest Washington, D.C., which was under urban renewal. And, um, and she, there was no internet, there was no faxing, there was no video conferencing, no FaceTime. So she got her job based on a telephone interview and a resume that was mailed. And so when she reported to work in DC, um, they didn't know she was a black woman. And uh, they rescinded the offer and said that they didn't think that the white sales uh, team would be comfortable um, you know, reporting to a black woman, even though they were selling many of those properties to black professionals. So my mother had to go back and being a secretary 
And so I was 13 when that happened. And, uh, and then fortunately, she got one of her temporary jobs was at Fannie Mae. And uh, she came across, you know, a man who, um, you know, was a senior executive and she was his a secretary. And when he found out what she was doing, he said, you're way overqualified for this. And then he um, arranged for her to get a position as a mortgage analyst at Fannie Mae. And then that helped her resume her career. But I watched her throughout my childhood um, confront obstacles um, as a black woman. And so being a black American, there's one obstacle we have, and as black men, we confront that. Women confront that, but black women have a, a head, double headwinds at them, and I saw that. And so it shaped me, and from day one, I wanted to run a different type of business, and one that would be receptive to someone talented like my mother. And that shaped me as a business person, and that is what I try to do each day I'm in business is to knock down those kinds of barriers. And so that story I just told you is much more relevant about who I am than Forbes or anybody else saying how much money I got or something like that. Yeah, clap it up for that. So you went to college, but you didn't finish college. A lot of the stuff you learned in real estate, obviously you watched from mom and it was kind of self-taught. At 23, you start your own business, but at 26, you develop your own first building. Take us through that process, because at 23, like he said, we were at the Royal Palms. At your building, at 23, you're building, at 26, you're building your first one. Let's take, talk us about that process. Well, I mean, I, I, so I, um, um, when I moved back to D.C., my mother thought it was important that I be exposed to black men um, achieving things, and also to understand the power of politics. So she had me volunteer um, for a DC in 1974, so I was 14, that's when the city got home rule and got a chance to elect its own government. So she had me volunteer for a, she said, you gotta pick one of these candidates that's running for the city council and volunteer for them you know, for one month out of the summer. And I'm like, I don't wanna work for free. She said, well, you have to do that and you gotta pick somebody. So I picked the most radical person, I mean, the most progressive one. So, um, and it was a guy named Marion Barry and he had, um, he, he was the co-founder of SNCC um, with John Lewis and, uh, and led uh, the Student, student Nonviolent Coordinating uh, Council um, and was very active in the civil rights movement with Dr. King and had come to D.C. and was pressing an agenda for economic empowerment for black people. And so I volunteered for him. I was 14, met him a few times. I'm, it was a kind of talkative young man and he, he, you know, we were friendly and I made him laugh a little bit. He won. And, uh, and then, um, you know, he was on the city council. I went to the inauguration and all that stuff. And then um, after that, four years later, I mean, two years later, my mother said, you know, you need to go work on Capitol Hill, learn politics there. She, so I got, she got me a six months patronage or a term to be a page on Capitol Hill. And I didn't even know what that was until I went to work there. So they had a school on the top floor of the Library of Congress. Um, and right across from the U.S. Capitol, and you go to school there from 6 in the morning until 10.30, and then 11 o'clock on, you'd, walk, you'd be at the U.S. Capitol, and you'd work as like a messenger um, for the Congress. So I went up there for six months. I ended up staying there for two years. I became very friendly with Ron Dellums, who was a congressman from uh, California, John Conyers, who had brought me up there from Michigan, um, and uh, Charlie Rangel, um, and uh, I worked for all three of them and got a chance to really get a perspective of, about what black leadership was about and what a sense of purpose was. And then after that, I went to, I graduated um, 
high school, um, and uh, my graduation ceremony was in the Cannon uh, Caucus room where they elect the Speaker of the House of Representatives. And that morning, my mother and I and my grandfather and my aunt and uncle went over to the White House and got a certificate of achievement from President Carter in the Rose Garden. So I had you know, kind of big expectations. I was going to be a doctor like my uncle. And then after my first year, I quit. And uh, I went back to D.C., and that was 1979. And then 19... Um, 80, I started working as an appraiser with my, <clears throat> for my mother. And, uh, and then Barry ran for re-election in 1982. And I got much more engaged in his campaign. He won a second term. And uh, within a few months, he, um, I was appointed to the Property Assessment Appeal Board, um, which was a board that reviewed all the real estate assessments for the city. And then the following year, he made me chairperson. So at 23, I was on the most powerful board in the city. At 24, I was chairman of it. And so I was a very powerful uh, person in local politics and local government at that point. And then um, a year or so later, um, his government and he agreed to pre-lease um, an office building that I proposed developing in an area called Anacostia that had been destroyed by the riots that I remember in 1968. And, and then I became a part of helping rebuild it. And uh, that project um, was a 100,000 square foot building. The goal was to kickstart economic development in a predominantly black community and start redevelopment of a black community. And then um, to uh, you know, um, you know, ignite redevelopment. Today, Homeland Security spent over five billion. I built that building in 1980. I delivered it in '89. Today, Homeland Security has a five billion dollar campus over there. It's one of the hottest neighborhoods in Washington D.C. A lot of economic development activity. And that project though wasn't easy though because I ended up on the front page of the Washington Post, and other people didn't like the fact that Barry had supported someone who was inexperienced like me. Um, and had, I'd never owned a house, yet alone a building. Um, but I built the building about nine months early, and uh, that was the beginning of my career. And I would never have been here today if it wasn't for him giving me that opportunity. And that's why I say, I mean, we cannot look, I mean, every black political leader to knock down these barriers was a target. Dr. King was a target of our own government, by the way. The FBI has never been the friend of black economic empowerment. J. Edgar Hoover ran a racist organization, and that was the culture of the FBI. And they investigated Dr. King, Malcolm X, Medgar Evers, every civil rights leader, including Barry. And Barry was vulnerable, and they got him and embarrassed him. And, uh, but he had done some transformative things, and I am an example of that. And so we can't let one mistake when we live in a society where so many people are given second chances that we can't say that black men only get one chance, one strike and you're out. And so we got to judge people by the entirety of who they are. Yes. Clap it up for that and rest in peace to Mayor Marion Barry. Um, so let me, let me ask you this. There's a lot of people here that are looking to get into real estate, real estate development. Your start came from working with the government. How important is it to make inroads with local government officials if you want to be in real estate, especially real estate development? And what are some ways that you can make inroads with politicians? Great. Good question. So first of all, I think one of the reasons why I ended up in a deal where the government was involved is because I could not get a fair chance from the private sector. Um, the DC was a majority black city, and there was one black developer in it um, when I started. And there was a reason for that, 
because if they opened, if the floodgates got open, then, and more of us walked through those doors, then there'd be no excuse to say, well, why don't we have more black developers? And so the development community has never been hospitable to change. And we can look here in New York City, and <clears throat> which hopefully we'll have a chance to talk a little bit more about later, but there's not one major building, not one skyscraper in New York City owned or developed by someone black. And as far as I know, the only major building south of 110th Street owned by a black developer is mine at 108 Leonard Street. So that tells you that we have an unfair system. So the idea, though, and also the idea in the private sector, you, to break down some barriers, you've got to have a lot of cash to do it. In government, you can have political power, the right, the, the opportunity to vote, the opportunity collectively to shape, you know, the outcome. And so let's just think about Joe Biden. Joe Biden would be on the porch of his house in uh, Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, looking out at the ocean as a private citizen if it wasn't for black people, especially black women, because black women brought him to the promised land in Georgia. Never would have won Georgia without black women. He didn't win, uh, he won Michigan because of black voters. He won uh, Pennsylvania because of black voters, and that got him presidency. And in and, and the primary, he was dead in the water there, and it was um, uh, Jim Clyburn in South Carolina that saved him there. So black Americans elected the president of the United States. So he owed, <laughs> so he owes us a big debt. And it's time for us to collect it. And Juneteenth, while a nice, important memory, isn't enough to pay the debt. And I think that's part of the mindset that we need to have. So I got into public-private partnerships because I knew I got a fair chance. There was somebody fighting for me. The mayor of Washington, D.C. said, we're doing this. And it doesn't matter that you're complaining about it or you're saying that I'm, uh, he's a protege of mine, so what? I'm doing this. And that was a political power, and the voters backed him up and kept reelecting him. And, and so public-private partnerships are designed for in theory, fairness. So if we think about where we are in this country today, there's two issues that this country, the two moments in time right now for this country. The first one is the, a, a global pandemic, that COVID has decimated our economy and our country. Um, and, and this is, you know, a, a once in a century, the last pandemic of this magnitude uh, was the Spanish flu exactly 100 years ago. And the second one is the unprecedented civil protest around the country um, fighting and protesting for economic uh, uh, equality and criminal justice fairness for black Americans. So those are the two moments. So right now, those two moments are ripe for us um, because you have the government spending trillions of dollars to rebuild our economy, and supposedly the private sector has heard the voices of the protesters and all of us about this quest and our quest for fairness. So the private sector is not, doesn't have those burdens of responsibility. I think they're getting closer to that. So the public sector provides economic opportunities. And so the government does affordable housing by and large. And so my view is that shouldn't affordable housing be reflective of the population demographics of the people who occupy them? And shouldn't the economic benefits from them be reflective of the population demographics? Shouldn't um, development opportunities in New York City that is 
of people of color and 53% female, shouldn't those opportunities be distributed reflective of the population demographics? They should be, and they can be, and we have the currency to require that. So that's why I like public-private partnerships. And then on the real estate side, the simplicity of it is that we don't, you, and if I want to go and build uh, a tower in Manhattan and the site's worth $500 million, I got to go pay $500 million. And that's, the, and, and whoever pays the most money is going to win that, uh, is going to get the right to buy that property from the seller, if it's a private seller. The public sector, the government wants other things. They, they're not land speculators. So normally they want a certain outcome. They want a certain type of building. They want a certain type of use. And in theory, they, they say now more often they want inclusion of, and diversity. And so those are other grading criteria that are, uh, are not as relevant to dollars. So you can not have to pay as much. The other thing is, is that you don't pay for the land until you're ready to develop the land. So, get, so think about that for a second. Let's use a, an example. Um, there's a project called 11, X1, right on the high line. It went into foreclosure, et cetera. Uh, and that was developed by HFZ. He, they paid a billion dollars for that site. Took them three years to develop that site, to start construction. So the carrying costs were about 20% a year. Property taxes, insurance, debt service on the interest and the equity. So, the, so that's $200 million a year. They're carrying that cost, right? So, and then, so you're starting off with the land actually costing $1.6 billion. Now go up the street to Hudson Yards, and Related has that whole development there. They don't pay until they commence construction on a piece-by-piece -piece basis. They fix their price back when they got the rights to do it in, I think, 07. Um, and you know how prices have gone up. So they got this big arbitrage. And then the city and the states um, gave them a subsidy, apparently, of about $2 billion. And they built a subway station to support that. So there, the developer has made billions of dollars just on the land appreciation and the valuation of the subsidies. And so think about related, which, and I hate to pick on them because they're a great company, but think about them as the largest private developer in the United States. Their biggest projects have been public-private partnerships. He started off as a, um, as a affordable housing tax credit lawyer, then got into building affordable housing himself. Then the AOL Time Warner Center, that was on government land. That was an old New York Coliseum site. And then Hudson Yards, which is going to have a dozen or more buildings, and that was government land. So imagine if I told you I'm going to sell. Um, we're in a hot market. I'm going to sell you a piece of property that's worth a billion. I'm going to sell it to you below market for 700 million, and you and it's going to take you three or four years to build the first building, and you don't have to pay me any of the money until then. And there's no interest, and you don't have to pay property taxes, and you don't have to pay any insurance. I'm going to pay all that. Be a great deal, right? And you shouldn't, and you'd have to go out of your way not to make money. So that's the public-private process in a snapshot. So, sorry, that's incredible. So the, the, let's talk about, since we're on the topic of New York development, the Affirmation Tower, important. And correct me if I'm wrong, the tallest tower uh, that when it's finished in New York City, the first black, fully black developers that are doing it. What was the process of getting that and the importance of doing it? Well, I think, first of all, look, I was, so this came, the, the state issued an RFP um, for that site. Um, in 2020, I think, late 2020. 
And so we had a global pandemic. Already people were leaving New York, businesses were leaving New York, office market was soft before the pandemic. So initially when I looked at it and my, my team looked at it, we all agreed to pass. And then I happened to be reading an article about Hudson Yards. And I'm like, wait a minute, we ought to go, maybe we should go after this site because the chances are we won't be building anything for three, four, five years. So, and prices are down now, so maybe we take a shot and tie it up. So we kicked it around and, and we looked at what the use could be. And then I thought about it and I said, you know, if I'm gonna take a risk and do something in New York, because this is probably the last big deal I'm gonna do in New York for a while, um, you know, how do I wanna do it? I wanna do it differently. And so I, so I started off saying I wanted to be all black owned and, and, uh, or majority black owned. So I called up Cheryl McKissack, you know, who runs um, the oldest black owned construction company in the country. And I said, like, I want you to you know, partner up with Suffolk, who is a large, the largest privately owned construction company in the country who we do business with. I want you to partner up with them. We're going to do this on a joint venture basis. And you're gonna, we're going to develop um, this project. And I want you to also be an owner in the development. So she came in on the development team as well. And then Craig Livingston, Livingston of Exact Capital brought him in, and then our company. But I recognize, and I think this is always very important, I think the true mark of business intelligence is to recognize our own limitations, right? So I had never built a skyscraper in New York before. So I said, okay, well, let's make it so that's not an excuse not to pick us. So I contacted a a, a friend and business associate, Steve Whitkoff, who had just finished a building called 111 Murray, which was a super tall building and geometry-wise similar to what I wanted to build, and brought him in, and he's got a, he's a 20% partner, and he, his company and our company are co-developing it. And so once we had the ownership set, and I said, okay, I want to build a transformative building. I want a black architect, but I want to send a message. So I brought in David Adjay. David Adjay is the, um, art, one, of the, he's one of the top architects in the world, and the world's most prominent black architect. He did the Museum for African American History and Culture on the Smithsonian Mall. So I brought him in to do the design. And then uh, we brought in, uh, I wanted to give the NAACP of New York their headquarters in our building, brought them in. And, uh, and then um, the design, so I had David design the building, gave him a sense of what we wanted to do in terms of uses. So it's gonna have two hotels, sculpture garden, showcasing uh, black New Yorkers who've affected you know, the lives of, you know, of all of us. Um, and, uh, and then we do offices and then uh, observation deck and some other stuff on the roof. So they came back to me with a building that was about 1,250 feet tall and a budget to build it. And I, you know, super tall buildings are very expensive to build. So, so 1,250 feet, why 1,250? Well, that's how the, the layout went on the FAR and so forth. So I said, well, let's look at doing something different. What's the tallest building in uh, New York? And so they said, One World Trade. And I, and I looked, we pulled it up on a screen and we're looking at it. And it was really not, so it was, it was 1,600, uh, 1,700 feet but it was at the top of a spire, this little antenna almost on the top of it. And so I said, well, why don't we build, let's just redesign the building and let's get ourselves up to 1600, so 100 below or 1650, you know, to be just below to, you know, to pay respect to One World Trade, but to be the tallest building. And, um, and I also had asked, what's the tallest building in the Western Hemisphere? And it was One World Trade. And I said, to the roof line, what is it? And then there was some other building. So we decided to build 
what would be, I, I made the decision, I said change the design, come back with a building that's 1,650 feet tall or better. And that's what we ended up with and that's how we designed it. Because I mean, so my point was is that if it's going to be the first, it's the first skyscraper to be built in New York City. If we're going to build the first skyscraper and we've waited this long to get a chance to do it, it needs to make a powerful statement. It needs to be the best. Go big or go bigger. <laughs> So can you walk us through, like, how does financing for a project like that work? Huh. I mean, I think that, look, I mean, the thing about development, and I'd say one of the other elements of why I think I've been successful at this is that I'm a dreamer. I'm a Pisces, and I'm a, I remember my mother oh, yeah. telling that me. Make, that makes, when, when's your birthday? March 2nd. March 3rd. I'm, I'm, all right. March 3rd. I'm February, all right. February 27th, so, <laughs> so we're, we're all Pisces. We got a March right. thing going, man. Yeah. Pisces. So, <laughs> So, so my, to the Pisces. my mother told me that Pisces were dreamers. And so I said, okay. And I, and I took that kind of almost negative. It was like a challenge. I said, well, I'm going to dream big and I'm going to make them come true. And so I have, again, we talked about this earlier. I do, I mean, I worked initially for money because I wanted to be able to eat and have a roof over my head like everybody else and to, to live well and, and then to be able to to live as well as anybody else, but but it got to a point real fast that I mean that and it was never just that, but um, I got to a place where I wasn't looking to work um, for for money. I was looking to work for transformation. I wanted to do something very different, and I wanted to make a statement, and I wanted to knock down some barriers so that we could have greater diversity and inclusion, because I just don't think that black Americans can, we should not be burdened with a disproportionate burden of poverty. And the way that that changes isn't by somebody giving it to us, it's that we got to go out and set the course ourselves. So I've always worked to try to do bigger. So I always look at the next bigger deal, the next bigger deal, the next bigger deal. And I always figure, I learned a long time ago, I'll figure it out as I go. And so, in this instance, though, I had to prove to the state that we could afford to build it. So, um, the debt, I contacted um, a fund that we've done a lot of business with, that I know uh, the CEO of the fund, and um, said, look, we're doing a $3.6 billion development. So, good news is you can deploy a whole lot of capital, but I'm going to need you to step up and lend us 60% of that. And, uh, and then I called one of the largest asset managers in the world who've been touting how they're going to be more inclusive in ESG. And I said, I want you to think beyond affordable housing. I want you to think beyond, you know, helping a few small business people. Let's think bigger. You're going to build the tallest building in the Western Hemisphere. And it's going to be an instant landmark. And, uh, and you also are going to get to deploy over a billion dollars. And, uh, and so... You're going to get to deploy a billion dollars. Like yeah. <laughs> because in the end of the day... They're in the business. You got to think about this. They're in the business to make money. They have to deploy capital to make money. I'll give you an example. Blackstone just did a fund and raised $25 billion for an equity fund. There's so much capital going on out there that's out there that uh, they can't deploy enough. There's more capital than there are opportunities. They just don't look at us as a business opportunity. They look at us philanthropically as opposed to seeing us as a, a place to do business and people to do business with. But there's a tremendous amount of capital. So when I, I was at an event the other day speaking and I was saying, because I gave a statistic that showed how unfair, um, you know, white men have this, you know, 
tremendous advantage. I said, nothing will ever be taken from you guys because they can't deploy all the capital now. So you want to deploy it all, it'll be better. You'll make more money because you'll be able to lend all the money out. So anyway, so the long and short of the story is, is that we got this, this firm to step up to over a billion dollars of uh, private equity and, uh, and then to commit to that and give us a letter. So we went to the state and when we presented the one thing that the analyst said is who was, an, who was doing the financial analysis and the consultant said, we have no doubt that you all can finance a building. And I thought that was a pretty powerful statement, a $3.6 billion building. We proposed building a bigger building than anybody else, and we proposed building a taller building than anybody else, and we proposed unprecedented diversity and, uh, and, and, and also had the money to pay for it. And uh, so I thought that was a, a winning proposition. And then Andrew Como had to leave office. And, uh, and then we got a new governor, and she's tiptoeing around, and so they have now canceled the RFP and are going to reissue it. Um, and, uh, and so that is indicative of what kind of happens is that, you know, in New York more than any place else is that when, you, when we cross the barrier, then the barrier gets moved. Mm -hmm. um, but we are close to making an announcement to bring the Civil Rights Museum to Affirmation Tower as well. And we're not giving up and there's such a great deal of support for what it stands for. And by the way, I am building it for what it stands for. I will be risking almost all of my net worth to build it. But it's something that has to be built. And I want to build something so that when our young people look at the skyline, because that's what New York City is known for, when they look at the skyline, they can see that the tallest building was built by people like them. Powerful. That's powerful. You know, as you were speaking, I, I, I remember this, this Jay-Z line, he was like, there's more blacks the higher I go. And so you're kicking down doors, you're, you're, you're breaking barriers for all of us. I'm wondering, was there somebody that helped you like in the mentorship role as you're climbing this ladder? And on the other end, are you seeing young, more black African-Americans as you're climbing that it, you're like, you know what, I love what you're doing in this space. Let me give you some tutelage as I grow as well. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, when I started, there were not many black business people um, in the real estate space. There very few black entrepreneurs. And, and so my mentorship really came from black politicians. I mean, I cannot underemphasize what I learned from Marion Barry. Um, and I, you know, I mean, I can't underemphasize what I learned from a John Conyers or a Ron Dellums. I mean, they were my role models. And then I'll never forget, um, you know, um, and, and it was Barry who introduced me to other black business leaders in D.C. And so when I was doing my first building um, in Anacostia, the first building I did, um, while so there was another developer who had wanted to develop that, a white developer. And so he leaked out a story to the Washington Post. So one day I came in from my office, came from a meeting outside my office, and the, my assistant gave me, you know, me the messages were on sheets of paper back then. This is 1986. And so it was a call from a report at the Washington Post. I said, wow, this is great. They're, they're going to do a nice story about, you know, this nice building that we're doing, a, built by a Washingtonian, a black developer redeveloping a major project in a historically black community. We're rebuilding our community. It's all good. It's going to be a great story. So I called the reporter back. 
reporter gets on and says, hi, I'm uh, Tom Sherwood. I'm from the, I'm an investigative reporter from the Washington Post. I said, what do you mean investigative reporter? <laughs> and he said, well, we're looking into your relationship with the mayor and how that resulted in the city paying you more than what the rent's worth for your building. And I'm like, okay, well, let me call you back. <laughs> so, so I uh, called uh, uh, the mayor's office and spoke to his press assistant and the um, the, the press secretary advised me on how to handle it and so do a meeting in person, record it and so forth. So I did this meeting and I had remembered when I, be, I wanted to make it easy for Barry because I, you know, I was somewhat politically astute. So when I made my proposal, I had offered um, to, do, to lease the space for less money than what he had signed a letter of intent for with a white developer. So a white developer was going to develop this site but hadn't had the site under control and was negotiating with the seller and, the, but, and went to the seller and gave him this letter from the mayor saying, no one's going to buy your land other than me and I'm going to pay you $750,000 for it. The broker for that seller happened to be a subtenant of mine and brought the deal to me and that's how I got it. So we offered, the, this mayor signed a letter for $22.50 a square foot. I, I, I did a letter um, for, uh, for $18.75, so less money. And uh, so it's better deal for the city. So this guy did this article, and it was on the front page of the Washington Post next to the Iran-Contra articles of Ronald Reagan. There was my little building in Anacostia. And I'm like, God, I'm trying to get ahead, and this is what I got to deal with? And I'm like, I'm 26, so I'm really not, you know, mentally as strong enough to deal with an attack from one of the most powerful media organizations in the country. And I'm like, why are they coming after me? So... I went to lunch that day to meet a friend of mine, and I went to this place, it's called Joe and Moe's. It was a power lunch place of um, D.C. A lot of, a lot of um, you know, real estate power brokers and political power brokers locally, and some black business people. It was kind of the hangout for the, uh, the business establishment there in D.C. So I walk in there, and the head of the oldest and largest black bank in the country, Independence Federal Savings Bank, and the guy's name was Billy Fitzgerald. And so I walk down these stairs coming into the restaurant. I'm like holding my head down a little bit. Billy comes over to me, and he's, he was, I was, um, as I said, 26. He was probably my age now, 62. So he comes over to me and he says, welcome to the club. <laughs> and then he explained to me that you are not going to have a fan club here. There's not going to be a cheering section for you. They're just going to be landmines and obstacles. And the cheering section is going to be us. We're going to cheer for each other. And you're going to cheer for each other. And I want you to remember this day that how you're feeling. Well, some of our brothers and sisters are going to feel that same way. And I want you to do what we're going to do today. And so he said, you're taking a day off. I had my lunch. We hung out. We played poker and hung out in the back room and played cards and had a good time and it cemented a, a, a friendship for the rest of my life with him. Always going to be obstacles in life. Um, is there a set of real estate commandments that you uh, live by? I know uh, location, location, innovation is something that um, I know you were credited for. So can you explain that? And yeah, are there uh, real estate commandments that you live by? Yeah, there are. And the number one is make your money going in. So I gave you a little hint about um, public-private partnerships. So rumor has it that Hudson Yards, before the pandemic, related was up three and a half billion on land value alone. 
and that that gave some resources to buy the dolphins. Um, so that's what rumor has it. But so imagine now, again, if you control the property, you fix the price, and you go three years down the line. Remember the billion dollar asset I told you about how 200 million a year to carry it. So if the value didn't go up at all, you're up you know, $600 million if you didn't have to pay that, right? So the public-private deals I like the most because I can control, I don't, the price, number one, is not the sole determining factor, and so we have to be smart enough to figure out how to give people something more than price. Two, um, you pay when you're ready to start make, putting the land to use and not before. And three, you don't take entitlement risk. So I like to make my money going in. So I take risk, but they're very controlled risk, um, and I like the public-private space because it allows me to make my money on the land value. So, so historically, throughout my career, I've always looked to make sure that the day I'm committing to the deal, it's profitable. And that I don't have to ride the market up. I don't, I'm insulated. And so make your money going in. Look to get the best value. Anyone. Well, not anyone, but most people, I mean, it doesn't take a lot of ingenuity if you have cash or access to capital to go pay more than anybody else. And in a hot market, that's what you have to do in order to control a piece of property in the private sector. So you got to figure out how to do that. And I do it through public-private projects, or I take entitlement risk, I take more complicated deals, and then say, give me time to make your deal uncomplicated, and I'll pay you more money. And so that's the number one principle is there. And, uh, and then the second one is to think big. I mean, to be uncomfortable. I mean, you know, I had to stop listening to all my relatives. I had to stop listening to my mother, as well-intended as she was, because they're trying to protect me. And I wasn't really interested in being protected. I was interested in excelling. And so I had to get way out of my comfort zone. But I would say that the number one thing, make the money going in. Okay. Valuable lesson. <laughs> So we obviously talked about the barriers that you face here in New York trying to develop. We know what you've done in D.C., but I watched this like 30-minute interview when they were asking about in the next 20 years, where's a place in America that we should be looking at if we're talking about developers? And you said Miami. Obviously, you have some, you know, we talked about our stay there, but what is it that you saw in Miami as a, from the development side that made you make that statement? Fundamentals. I think you got to look at things. By the, I mean, one of my most... Um, favorite quotes that's been inspirational to me for so long, Robert Kennedy used it a lot. It was some people see things as they are and they ask why. I dream of things that never were and ask why not. That is how Barack Obama got to be president, right? That is how all of us have made it, the progress that we've made in our lives is why not? And so, I have looked, I look at Miami, and you have to look at real estate differently. So New York has always been New York. It's New York, New York, New York. Okay, but Miami's growing, and so what would make Miami attractive, and why are people beginning to shift down here? Well, they were shifting down to Miami. One reason is nice quality of life, nice weather, no snow, nice quality of life, the beach, the ocean. And then um, one other thing, and it was a reason I moved there. So I was living there. I got a vacation home there in 1995 and won the rights to the Royal Palm within six months. And so I was going back and forth to um, D.C. And my son was two years old. And so we had an apartment down there. 
And I was going back to DC to meet with my office team, my staff, and the development side, and then I met with my accountants as well, because it was like in some early April. And they had been hit by this massive snowstorm, and the snow was piled up on both sides of the roads where they plowed it. So I met with my accountants, and they were telling me how much I owed in local taxes. And I'm like, why am I paying that? I, I mean, I, I don't, my son doesn't go to private, public schools, he goes to a private school. I mean, I don't use the infrastructure here. I'm not, I'm not burdening the infrastructure with that much money. And he said, well, you know, you could save all of this if you just became a Florida resident. So I said, really, all of it? And he said, all of it. So, I, reloc I got a home in Miami, I sold my house in D.C., and I moved my company down to Miami. And I did it because of quality of life and economics. So I always felt, okay, if I made that decision, and Washington, D.C. is my hometown, I mean, I had as, if I'm going to have home field advantage, it was there. Um, it was a predominantly black city. I knew the entire political establishment, and I'd learned to navigate the city, and I picked up and left. So I felt that if I were willing to do that, I mean, couldn't that argument be made by many more people in D.C., many people in New York, many people in Chicago and so forth? And I felt that that would be the case. And also I found Miami to be more multicultural and more diverse on an everyday experience as opposed to I saw New York as more segregated. I saw D.C. as more segregated. And so I thought that that would be the future um, you know, um, of our country is greater connections amongst people. And so I saw Miami and all those reasons, and it was undervalued. So you could buy a, um, uh, an apartment in Miami on the ocean, say back in 2002, you could buy, or right after, nine, say after 9-11, et cetera, when everything's percolating, let's go to 2008. You can buy an apartment, a beautiful apartment on the ocean in Miami, the best building for $800 a square foot. Best building in New York was, you know, 8,000 a square foot. So the economics were more compelling. And so I thought for those reasons, Miami had a lot of runway because it can compete favorably to New York and it can compete favorably to Chicago and other areas in the Northeast and the Mid-Atlantic. And, uh, and that's all true. And then Citadel, Ken Griffin, um, Illinois' richest citizen, just announced yesterday he's moving his whole company um, down to Miami. A thousand people and taking his money with him, and I think we're going to. And you, more and more New Yorkers are down there as well. So I think looking at what can be, as opposed to what is, is a great way to invest in real estate. They're also trying to become the crypto capital of America. They're taking strong steps forward with that. So, yeah, Miami real estate is hot right now. But let me ask you this: as far as the real estate market in general uh, has not declined, even when the stock market has declined, crypto has declined. Uh, real estate has continued to go up, and now, you know, interest rates are rising. Um, it's pretty much, I think we're already in a recession, but they haven't announced it yet. They'll probably, you know, after this quarter, um, we'll probably officially be in a recession. So people are concerned about real estate. What is your overall thoughts about the real estate market, commercial, residential? Are you concerned, or do you have any fear in it? Well, I mean, I think, you're, I think your assessment is right. I think we are in a recession. We're seeing it, and the statistics will start showing it soon. Um, I think that we, real estate, if you're in the real estate business, then you can make money in every aspect of it. So um, I made more money, the most money at the time of our, con of our company's history back in the early 1990s when I started buying 
um, because we had a banking and financial crises and the junk bond crises and the SNL crises in the early 90s. I started buying up land in uh, downtown DC, you know, at 20 cents, 10 cents on the dollar. And, um, and, and I was able, I bought one building for $5 million, $3 million, $5 million and then cut a deal with the defaulting tenant to pay off their lease for a million two fifty. So I paid three million seven fifty. I ended up holding it for a little while and then converting it. It was an office building, converting it to a Marriott hotel, which I owned for 20 years. And it was in an enterprise zone in downtown DC. Um, so there was no capital gains tax for first 20 years. I sold it at the end of the 20th year for $130 million. And I put all in, I think I had 20 million in it. So there's always a way, and we made money all along the way too in cash flow. So if you're in the real estate business, there's gonna be great buying opportunities. But I think places like New York, the real estate market's pulled back in New York. And, and overall in the country, while prices have been holding, volume is down for the four straight months. So, but all markets aren't created equally. So New York, there's, there's no reason just fundamentally to think about how New York could continue to hold values, right? Because, now it'll hold it at the moderate level and at the, the, what would be entry level for luxury in New York, which is a couple million dollars, because it's, it's supply constrained. But going up beyond that, um, people are going to be much more interest rate sensitive because now the cost of a mortgage is double what it was a year ago. Um, and also less people are living here and people are working remotely. So a place like New York, you'd have to look at certain pockets. But overall, as a market, it's going to pull back. Miami, where they can't build the housing quick enough, they can't build office space. We're doing two buildings in South, office buildings in South Beach because there's not enough office space. And so for King Griffin's going to have to, I don't know where he's going to have his employees. I mean, they have to be in an apartment or something. I mean, they'll work remotely because there's no space for them. So that, I mean, so that market is going to continue to attract Nashville, the Sun Belt in general. But the, the cities with strong fundamentals, lower taxes, business friendly, and opportunity for growth and quality of life. And so you're going to see some of those markets, Chicago's in big trouble. DC on the office market is in terrible shape. And because people are working remotely. So all markets, it's important that everybody think about this. Yes, there's a recession. So now there will be a time period. And I think what's going to happen, I think we're going to have an experience very similar to 1979, 1980, when OPEC had an oil embargo against us. Inflation was running out of control. And the Fed were trying to control inflation by raising interest rates. And it put us into a terrible recession. And then Ronald Reagan came in, and as horrible as he was as a president, he was great for business because what he did is he immediately gave tax cuts and, and pushing interest rates down. So I think we've got two years of very painful um, experiences to happen in many sectors of our economy. And then it'll roll into, by 2025, you'll start seeing some real runs. So the thing to do on real estate in place is, if you look at real estate as a 12-hour clock, which is how I like to look at real estate, 12 o'clock being the peak, right? Then you want to definitely not be a buyer, you know, at one o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock, right? Because you know you're losing money, right? So you want to start buying though about four o'clock, four thirty, and you want to buy all the way up until like seven, eight o'clock, nine o'clock, because you're making money. But you buy. So, but from twelve to four, you're a student of the market, um, and then from 
9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, depending on when you bought, you're a seller. And if you play it that way, then you can always perpetually be in real estate. And our company, I focused our company on geographic diversification. That's why we are in multiple markets, because while New York may not be moving, um, you know, Miami's on fire, so we just do more there, or Charlotte is on fire. So, you know, Boston, life science, office market in Boston's struggling, but life sciences is on fire, big backlog, so we're doing two life science buildings. I mean, so plan, geographic product type diversification and being in the real estate business. So make money when other people are losing money. Happens all the time. Hold on again. <laughs> So can we talk legacy for a sec? Because you, your company is first generation, right? Obviously, your mom introduced you to real estate, but your company, you've started the, the business yourself. You got two children. Obviously, your son's in real estate. Your daughter, I'm, I'm assuming, hopefully. How did you get them involved? Did they just get a natural interest for it because they were watching what you were doing? Well, it's interesting. I, my son did not want to work in the company um, when he was a teenager and so forth. He's more interested in spending some time with me, and so I kind of, we had this kind of interaction where he'd spend some time with me as I coached him in basketball, but he also spent some time with me working. And uh, so he got exposed to the business a bit, and I gave him little moments. He introduced me at a groundbreaking ceremony for the Bass Club condo, for example, when he was eight or nine, and I've involved him more in the business. Um, so, and then let him do his own thing when he, he, he went to Columbia. And then after, after a couple of years decided he took an internship, did a summer internship with us and after working at a couple other places. And, and then he took to the business. He got a good aptitude for it. And, um, and then he, you know, he and I complement each other. We're similar in some regards, but we're different. Um, but it was that, it was, I gave them the freedom, gave him the freedom, uh, you know, to learn. He didn't work for me or report to me. He's reported to two different people, one the head of development in New York, and then he went to D.C. and was on his own while I was here. Um, so more giving him the environment, but also, you know, the rewards. He learned as he matured that he was working for himself. And, uh, and so, um, you know, I think that Part of that was that, and I think I've instilled, if nothing else, I've instilled in our, in our kids um, a sense of purpose. And a sense of purpose, not money focused, but a sense of purpose of being a transformer to observe and see the wrongs in our society, but to not consider themselves spectators, but parts of solutions of how to right these wrongs and how to change the course of things. So, um, you know, so that's kind of how I got him in. It's interesting, though. Um, my daughter is got more like my personality. So she's really stubborn, and uh, and so she's told me I'm never going to work with you. And now she's at a point. She's a, a a rising sophomore at TCU, and she's beginning to say, well, you know, if you if you're gonna if you give me you know like some you know some independence, I could maybe work with you. So. <laughs> I, right, but I, but I tried to, I, I, I called her, I was in uh, um, L.A. I, a, a couple weeks ago, I'd gotten COVID, so I was quarantining in L.A. And I was getting, we, our company was getting an award for diversity and inclusion here in New York City. And she was in the city. And I said, look, I can't go. You know, um, I called her the night before, and I said, I can't go. You know, you have time to go and accept the award. For me, she said, well, what do you mean? You're not going to be to go? And I said, no. And I said, Donahue's um, in Charlotte. He can't go. Um, or he's in Boston, one of the two. And he can't go. So 
um, either, I mean, no one from our family is going to be to go, and so, but maybe you go, Shibari, let me think about it. So, <laughs> next day she calls me up and says, okay, I'll do it. I said, okay, well, I'll have some remarks written for you, and then you can tweak them and so forth. So, I had some remarks written for her. And uh, anyway, then she, you know, said, okay, I'll do it. And then she said, because somebody has to be there to accept it. And I said, okay. And she said, you should have been here. I said, well, I'm sick. I can't be there. And so anyway, she went and took it and uh, accepted the award and, uh, and then felt good about it. Felt good about her contributing something and accepting something. And she's, you know, a big, you know, uh, proponent in, um, of, of inclusion for women. And uh, so um, I think that piqued her interest a little bit. And so, and even today, I said, look, I'm not going to be able to go, you know, hang out with you and watch you horseback ride today. I'm going to be doing this. And she said, well, that's very important. You should go. And uh, she put some water and a soda by the door for me to drink on the ride in. So I think ultimately getting them interested in the greater purpose. I mean, it's hard to motivate someone, especially, I mean, someone who's had, um, you know, never had never had to worry economically about anything it's hard to motivate them with money so it's more about a sense of purpose and so I think Donahue operates um, from with a sense of purpose and I think Chloe definitely will if she goes into the business or does whatever she does it'll be with a sense of purpose and again I think that that's the way as, as to be six, truly successful business people to be motivated by a sense of purpose I mean because at a certain point you'll get to a place where you say the money isn't worth this I mean <laughs> You know, and and so you'll 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 need something else to propel you and give you that purpose. So in 2019, um, you announced a fund initiated to a $500 million fund, I believe, uh, for minority and women developers. Uh, so how has that gone? Um, what type of projects have been funded with that initiative? So I've always I've been very frustrated to see the, the lack of diversity in the development industry, in the real estate industry. Very frustrated. And so I've given a lot of thought and research as to why that is the case. And I you know, came up with, you know, my conclusions were one, our young people don't get exposed as much to real estate and entrepreneurship as they should. And so I got lucky I was exposed to real estate at eight years old. But so how do we, do that, and so we can do that through exposure early on, through you know putting it in public school systems. I mean, to learn about American history, you know, um, and the founding fathers is useless to our young people, as opposed to why not teaching them about how to manage money, how to go into business, and so forth. I think so. Exposure to the industry itself and opportunity for adults to get into the industry by having opportunities to work in companies and to learn the business, and then. The other one, and the bigger one, was capital. So every black business person I know, and I gotta believe that there's, I mean, I'd be interested to see, is there one person in this room, or anybody in this room who's in the real estate business or any kind of business doesn't need any money? Speak now. No, I'm serious, okay? Do you all, does every, raise your hand if you have all the capital you need to start or grow your business. Now think about that. One person in the background, okay. One person, all right. So, all right, now all the room in here, right? So I'm like, everybody I know, so why is that the case? So I did some research. So there is $69 trillion. $69 trillion currently invested in venture capital and private equity. $69 trillion. 
Now, Biden spent less than $2 trillion to try to save the country um, for COVID and build back from the recession and all that. And $69 trillion in that two sectors. Now, of that $69 trillion, less than 1.3% is invested in firms founded, run, or owned by women and people of color combined. 1.3%. Now, I'll give you a little footnote. Last year, the one group who started the most small businesses of any category were black women. 30% of all small businesses in the United States in 2021 were started by black women. Black women get less than two-tenths of 1% of venture capital or private equity. So imagine the unfair advantage. Majority of the country are, women, are female. Um, the country is becoming more and more diverse. And so yet we don't have this kind of access to capital. So white men receive 98.7% of all capital. Imagine that. Now imagine how unfair that is. And, and so when you look at that, I said, okay, well, we got to do something about it. So I can do a private equity fund. I've been doing this for a long time. So I said, I'm going to raise a private equity fund and I'm going to raise it for, you know, um, minority developers and women. And so initially I was told, one, you can't do that. I got to say it's for emerging um, developers and because I can't do it based on race and I can't do it based on gender. So I said, okay. So I go and I go to these public employee pension systems, like say New York City, for example. Now, I'll give you an idea, New York City, 80% of its workforce is people of color, the government, and over 60% of its workforce is female. And yet they have invested less than 3% of their money in firms run or managed by women and people of color combined. And so, I went to them, I went to others, and they said, hey, we invest in your company, but we think it's too risky to invest in, um, you know, minority firms and the small minority firms. And so I have been going around trying to raise this money. I got uh, the uh, state of California um, teachers um, gave us a, a proposal, a term sheet, and we've got some proposals from a couple of different banks. But it's been the hardest exercise to raise. I mean, it took me... 35 days or so to get the commitments to finance, um, you know, our building in Tribeca. It was $540 million. It took less than a month to get commitments of $3.6 billion for Affirmation Tower. And I'm like, wait a minute, we're gonna, you, this is right during, this is George Floyd, the protests, all this, everybody's saying they want to do more. And these public employee pension systems um, would not commit. New York State says they don't do first-time funds. I said, well, we're not a first-time fund. We are, I've been, we're, our company's been in business for almost 40 years. We've been developing for 36 years. Yeah, but you haven't been a fiduciary, so we can't do that. So not, we have yet to raise a little tiny $500 million fund. And I just told you all Blackstone raised last month $25 billion for opportunistic. And now the irony is that both the controller of the city of New York and the controller of the state of New York, uh, Tom DiNapoli, um, are elected. And no Democrat can win 
statewide without winning New York City, and no, Dem and, and, and no Democrat can win New York City without getting the majority of the black vote. So we need to be more educated about how our capital is deployed. And the irony is in New York City, again, 80% of the workforce are people of color. And yet we can't get fair access to our own money. So the challenge is, is access to capital. So if all of you all want to be in a position where one day you can raise your hand like the, the woman in red, um, you all need to be engaged in the political process because it's our money. And, but yet we can't get access to it, fair access to it. We wouldn't be, I wouldn't be making this an issue if the $69 trillion was deployed reflective of the population demographics of our country. But it's unfair to have to compete at such an extreme disadvantage. Now, that doesn't mean we give up or have an excuse. I don't look at it as, a, as an excuse. I didn't expect it to be harder. My grandparents told me I was going to have to be twice to three times as good and never expect it to be easy. I would have hoped by now it would be easier, but it isn't. So my advice is don't expect it to be easy. Keep pushing hard and keep fighting and, and growing your business and being successful like that 30% of black, uh, the black women who were starting businesses last year, they didn't give up or quit, they kept going. But at the same hand, we cannot ignore this systemic discrimination when it comes to access to capital. Remember what Dr. King said during the Civil Rights Movement, what good does it do the Negro to desegregate a lunch counter when they can't afford to buy a hamburger? Right? So there's a capitalistic democracy. And we need to be active, equal participants in that capitalism. And you all cannot accept this unfairness. And so it's important that you all challenge the system, too, and demand that these politicians step up. Because think about it again. This city is majority minority. Why is capital not deployed that way? But that's why I'm doing this fund, and I'm keep pushing. And by the way, I committed to putting up 10% of the fund. I'll never forget, I went into one meeting with the owner of a big private equity fund, and we're talking about, I said, I'll put up, we're raising $450 million, and I'm going to put up personally 10% of it. Now, Blackstone and their $25 billion is putting up like 1% or 2%. <laughs> We're, and the guy said, you're putting up 10%? And I said, yeah. He said, well, why? I said, you think anybody's going to give me any money if I don't put up 10%? They said, you don't have enough alignment of interest. I said, I want the fund to be raised. So I'm going to keep pushing. And I don't, I mean, I'm doing it because I know, because of all of you all who didn't raise your hand, I know the challenges that you're having. And that's why I'm going to keep trying to do it. And if I fail, I'm going to keep trying and keep trying and raising this as an issue. And what I really would like, if I could ask anything from you all, is for you all to start raising this as an issue. It's just not fair, and you shouldn't accept it. And imagine, let's imagine the world in a place where out of that $69 trillion, 13%, which is our population demographic in the United States, went to black businesses. So that would be $8 trillion we'd all have our hands up, right? So I need you all to, to realize that this is the frontier that you're gonna have to keep confronting, but it, you're not getting the capital 
because your ideas aren't as good. You're not getting the capital because you're not capable. You're getting the capital because the way it's deployed is systemically discriminatory because what these pension funds do is they don't, they don't deal directly with us. They deal with Blackstone, BlackRock, Goldman Sachs, and others, and they deploy capital. And, human, and capital is deployed by human beings. Companies, companies execute their plans by human beings, and those human beings bring their own perspective. And if they look at you philanthropically, then you're not going to get anything unless they want to give it to you. So before, before we wrap, I just want to, I want to ask a question that I'm sure a lot of people are asking, so I'll ask for you. Um, there's probably a lot of emerging developers here. Um, how can they work with you? Well, anyway, first of all, anyone can reach out to us, and, I've, and, and we will try to connect you with some place to have capital. But ultimately, the emerging developers all need to demand to write the controller, to write the newspapers, to do op-ed pieces, to write to your politicians, to call them. You want fair access to capital, because that's really what this is all about. And we are never going to make the great progress. There'll be an outlier. There'll be a Robert Smith. There'll be my friend Tracy Maitland or Byron Allen or me or somebody. We'll be outliers, right? But that's because we found that little kind of crack in the wall that no one could see, and we just, by luck, happened to hit it. And so, but in terms of having a meritocracy, that means that we got to open up the doors of capital. And you all can't have to do it. I cannot do it by myself. I can raise the issues, and I promise you I raise it every time I have a conversation in the media or in environments like this. But you all have to be the change agents. You guys cannot accept this anymore. Well, we thank you. This is this has been incredible. I, I'm impressed by your memory. <laughs> like the way you're running these numbers off, I'm trying to do the math in my head. Like, man, this is from 20, 30, 40 years. So thank you for all the knowledge. Thank you for everybody that's been here that got to receive this knowledge. And thank you for your, all your work that you've done for our community and will continue to do. We appreciate you wholeheartedly. My pleasure. Appreciate it. My graduates from my school being Forbes. Backdrop. Backdrop. <laughs> A mic drop. Bag drop. Bag drop.